Well, let's have a word of prayer, and uh, we'll tackle the subject at hand and trust the Lord to give us guidance today in our study. Father, we thank you for what we know you're going to do in our lives. You're a wonderful God, and we acknowledge that your mercy endures forever. That loyal love that is demonstrated to us so constantly is seen in so many ways. And even though your judgments are past finding out, we can't fully understand why you deal with us in the way you do. Yet, Lord, because we know your character, we have confidence that you are doing the right thing. And as for God, his way is perfect. And all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Give us that kind of confidence now in that which is taught today from your word. We'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we've talked of these numerous things that cause a uh, husband to react to a wife, um, we have talked about uh, an, uh, many, many uh, important things. Uh, perhaps none of them hit so close to home as the subject that's before us today. And that is the problems of inconsistencies in discipline. Uh, when, for instance, the husband disciplines and the wife defends the child or takes sides with the child, uh, perhaps thinks the father is too strict, um, then, of course, the husband reacts because he feels that the wife is being disloyal and just trying to win the child to herself. And that, of course, causes serious problems within the, the marriage. We also would, would uh, point out that there's another way that this is done. It may not be an overt, immediate response. It may be a more subtle thing, but uh, where the, the wife tries to compensate uh, for the husband's uh, uh, lack of judgment and discipline, at least in your opinion it's a lack of judgment, and so the wife tries to compensate by making up to the child in some way that sort of takes the edge off the husband's discipline. And the husband reacts to this, realizing that the wife is, is uh, uh, causing um, a serious breach uh, of loyalty and uh, a serious breach of understanding of authority in the family and the home. Now we've dealt already with a number of things that um, that happen uh, when the wife usurps authority. And uh, whenever that happens, there are attitudes that are developed that are not pleasing to God and that ultimately boomerang. And all you have to do is once again go to the book of Proverbs and read the many places where the, both the father and the mother are mentioned in regard to the, the, the uh, rebellious child and you'll discover something. You discover that the wife gets the worst end of the bargain. The wife is the one that really gets it in the neck when a child rebels. It hinders a father, it hurts a father, it grieves him, as one proverb said, it grieves the father. But it says it, br it brings intense bitterness to the wife, to the mother. Uh, the father can uh, very quickly uh, respond positively to achievement on the part of the child. But it's the mother who feels the real pain when the child fails. The, the father can be despised, but the mother is chased away constantly by the child. The mother really suffers uh, when the child is rebellious and all of the rest. So it's so important that you do this God's way so that you don't have to suffer. Spare yourself a little bit uh, so that you don't have to suffer. Now, of course, as, as we've done on each of these, we have tried to intimate to you 
some of the things that we would say to husbands, the reason we do that is because husbands do listen to these tapes on occasion, and uh, we have a chance to get them there, and uh, that's without you doing it. And also, we, we, we want you to have confidence uh, uh, that if I were speaking to a group of men today instead of a group of ladies, I would approach it just as strongly to the men in regard to their responsibilities as I do to you. And mind you, if your husband happens to come to Proverbs class on uh, uh, Wednesday morning, then uh, he gets both barrels at that time in no uncertain terms. So uh, you don't have to worry. Uh, every chance I get, I talk to husbands. I would far rather talk to the husbands than the wives in regard to some of these things. The husbands, unfortunately, many times are not as spiritually sensitive as the wives. And uh, you're the captive audience, and so I'll spend most of the time talking to you about your responsibility. But I, I do like to share with you, uh, just so you know that it is in the Bible, uh, that God has a word to the husbands as well. And of course, if I were talking to the husbands, I would uh, do everything I could to train men, the hows, the whens, the whys of discipline, which really involves three basic ingredients. It involves instruction, it involves warning, and it involves correction. And of course, Deuteronomy 6 would be a good passage to work on in regard to instruction because it gives the curriculum for training a child in chapter 6 through 10. Um, all of the things that need to be known there, and it's a tremendous passage. It begins with, these things shall be in thine heart. They have to be the conviction of the Father, and thou shalt teach them incisively, that is, with a sharp object poked, poking through. It's the idea of a spear running through someone. You take the sharpness of the teaching, the sword of the Spirit, and you teach the child diligently these things. And then the way you do it is by your lifestyle being an example of that which you would teach, by speaking of them while you're standing up and while you're lying down, while you walk in the way, uh, having them on the doorposts of your house. That doesn't mean literally you have to write them on the doorposts of your house. It simply means that everywhere the child goes, he will be reminded of these commands of God. And uh, there are all kinds of lessons that are given. Uh, the, the, um, uh, the idea of uh, teaching the child to learn from the lessons of history, uh, the idea of teaching him to flee idolatry. Uh, there are just a whole list of things in those uh, four or five chapters there in Deuteronomy 6. And the father needs to master those things, make them real in his own life, and then teach them to the child. And nothing could be more important to bring about a, a godly uh, generation. But then also there is the matter... Of warning, And that, of course, is in Ephesians 6, 4, uh, where it says that you are to bring a child up, uh, that is, you are to rear him, that is, you are to nourish him. Uh, the word in trefle means to nourish. You are to nourish him in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Now, the word admonition is the word N-O-U-T-H-E, S-I-A. The word actually means to counsel. Uh, it means to, to warn. Uh, the idea of warning is inherent in it. You can't escape the concept of, of the warnings that are involved. Uh, it, it, it means to confront. The child needs to be confronted. 
And uh, so it relates to instruction, but it has the, it's not so much the positive instruction as it is in a very real sense the negative. The child not only needs to know the things that God wants him to know, but he needs to know uh, from the standpoint of the things that he should not do. And he needs to learn uh, learn the, the concepts of nathasia. Then also correction. Correction is the word nurture. The word nurture is the word P-A-I-D-E-U-O. Peduo, and uh, that, uh, the word peduo comes from the word pace, which means a child. It's the idea of uh, peduo is the discipline, actually. It is, it's very important to understand this concept of discipline, and I'm going to save that for a minute because we're going to talk about that in just a few moments. But as to the father, uh, he, needs to, he needs to learn the concepts of discipline. It has to do with chastening. In fact, it is sometimes uh, translated in Greek secular lit literature to beat with blows. The idea of beating or the idea of, of, of spanking, if you please. But there's much more to it than that. It's always spanking uh, with a purpose and with, with something special in mind. As I say, we'll see about that in just a few moments. He's also told that he's not to provoke the child to wrath. He's not to exasperate the child. The word for provoke is the word par or gizo, which is the word that could be better translated exasperate. Don't exasperate your children. A lot of things exasperate children. I think one of the major things that exasperates a child is when a father says, do what I tell you, don't do what I do. Uh, a father that spanks his son for smoking when he smokes. That, of course, exasperates the child. Because the, the, the idea of, of perogizo is that it is the, the, the individual's response to injustice. And it is, it is unjust uh, when a father is not consistent in his own life but demands consistency of his child. And that's why the father's life has to really be right in order for him to have the best effect in discipline. And uh, so he is not to exasperate his child. Colossians 3.21 uh, tells us that he is not to provoke his child, but it's a different word. It's the word E-R-E-T-H-I-Z-O. Arithizo, which means to stir up, to stir up the child. Uh, and it actually has more to do with, with stirring him up in the sense of making him angry, making him wrathful, uh, antagonizing the child. Exasperation is one thing, antagonism is another. And those are the two, uh, the difference between these two words. It says you're not to antagonize the child lest he be discouraged. A-T-H-U-M-E-O. Thumos, or thumeo in this verb form, is the idea of, of, of uh, uh, emotion, high emotion. It can, it can mean uh, 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 anger. Um, it, can mean, it can mean aggressiveness or a spirit or however you like. The uh, alpha privative uh, at the beginning cancels out the meaning of the word. In other words, makes it negative, And therefore, it means the child has no spirit left. And you're not to, you're not to uh, 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 antagonize your child so that he loses his spirit. It's all right to break the will of a child, but you should never break the spirit of a child. 
And that should be a very, very important thing. Now, the father needs to know that. He needs to understand that. He needs to see what his responsibility is. And uh, that's a very important thing to be taught to parents. And that's uh, one of the things that we'll be teaching in our series on biblical relationships in the family. Um, and uh, we, we want to uh, uh, make those available, uh, that series available uh, in, in some albums as well. Uh, so that they can uh, uh, be given as gifts and really encourage fathers. These are some of the things we'll be teaching fathers uh, in that series, as well as teaching some things for mothers and so on. But we want to we, we, we want to concentrate the rest of our time today on two very basic principles that the wife needs to understand. Now, there's a lot of other things that you can teach to fathers, and those are those are the basic things. But the wives have something as far as their role is concerned that is important as well. The first thing is this, when you maintain proper attitudes, your child will tend to respond positively to the father's discipline even if it's unjust. That is when you teach the child by your example the right attitude. But if you resist inwardly, even if you don't do anything overtly, if you have an inward resistance to what the husband is doing, the child's going to sense this. And what's going to happen is when he gets to an age that he can uh, begin to do it, he is going to then resist both of you. If you think that by softening the blows of the discipline of a father that you can balance it, you're wrong. Because when the child sees that the wife is inconsistent in her discipline and is not supportive of the husband, then he eventually will break your heart. Because foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. And it's the rod of correction that driveth it far from him. And the child is, is going to ultimately turn on both of you. And uh, he'll scoff and he'll laugh and he'll scorn both parents because one parent has been inconsistent with the other. That's why it's so important in raising a child that there be harmony and agreement between the husband and wife. And the wife, of course, a lot of times has to bite her lower lip uh, because she sees things that she would handle differently. But she has to show deference to that husband. Now, all through life, that child is going to face unjust situations. Let's say that the father really is unjust. Your husband really is an unjust disciplinarian. He is not fair with the child at all. The child all of his life is going to face unjust situations. Injustice is a part of our society just as surely as, as God's word is true. God tells us that there are periods of time in all of the history of, of this world where men who should be just are unjust. And where justice does not rule, justice does not reign. The book of Proverbs was partially written to, to teach people how to be just and how to properly respond in the various uh, vicissitudes of life. And you see, the tragedy is that the child who is weaned away from unjust treatment without facing it re uh, realistically that child will never know or understand fully the meaning of grace in the midst of injustice. 
uh, injustice is, is something that we have with us. But we also have overruling grace. And God tells us in the midst of, of all kinds of inequity, he tells us that his grace is sufficient. In the midst of all kinds of, of pressures and trials and problems, he teaches us how to live with injustice. That's why the servant in, in uh, 1 Peter, the servant is told that he is to respond properly even to a perverse employer. He is to respond properly. Why? Because by his proper response to improper treatment, he demonstrates what grace is all about. He becomes an example of grace. And when he is buffeted for his faults, he is simply getting what he deserved. But when, he is, when it's carried beyond that, then it's an opportunity to demonstrate by a proper attitude the concept of grace. And a child needs to learn grace. Because if he fails of the grace of God, then a root of bitterness will spring up in his heart and he'll be a poisoner of other individuals as well. Now, it's with that in mind that I want to turn you to Hebrews chapter 12. The thing I would say to a wife in a situation like this is that you should always support the father in the discipline that he brings about, but you should give your child a good dose of overruling grace instruction in the matter of grace principles. And there is no passage of scripture that I know of that is more clear on this subject than the 12th chapter of Hebrews. It starts out by talking to us of the injustice of the treatment of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's backed up by Hebrews chapter 11 where the people walk by faith. And in their walk by faith, they endured all kinds of injustice. And then it focuses, after giving us that background, it focuses upon the person of Jesus Christ. In verse 1, it says, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about so great a cloud of witnesses, those would be the, the witnesses or the martyrists, the martyrs of uh, the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. But it says, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of testifiers, those that have already been there and have seen what God could do, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience, with endurance, with hupomone, uh, the uh, endurance of the circumstances of life, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured, the same word as patience in verse 1, the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him. Now the word consider is the word from which we get our word and analyze. It is the word analogizo, uh, which means to make an analogy. To make an analogy. So we want to make an analogy. We want to make a comparison. That's what we're doing in these next verses is making a comparison between Jesus Christ and his unjust suffering and our suffering, whatever that may be. Make an analogy concerning Christ 
that endured, there again is that word hupomone, which means to endure the circumstances of life, such a contradiction or opposition of sinners against himself. It actually is the idea of antilogia, to speak against. Lest you be weary and faint in your mind. You don't want to lose heart. You don't want your mind to become so weary that you uh, are not able to carry on the labor and the work that God intends for you to have. That's the whole purpose of this. God doesn't want you to get discouraged. Rather, he wants you to be encouraged, and so he says, make an analogy. Every time you think that you've suffered too much, just look at the cross. I'll tell you, it's a good exercise to do. Uh, if you think that you've suffered beyond what you can stand, then just take a nail and drive it through your hands and see if you've suffered that much. That's only a part of it. I mean, really, put yourself on the cross. The agony of nearly suffocating and and having to lift the body uh, to, to take a breath even against the pulling of the nails in your hands and in your feet. Uh, the tremendous uh, dehydration that took place there on the cross. Christ suffered unbearably. Not only that, but in the last three hours on the cross, he was separated from God because he bore our sins and became the sin bearer. Christ suffered tremendously. Did he deserve it? No. Why was he there? For us. It was not because of justice. It was the greatest injustice that has ever done. Christ gave his life for you. And as he did, he not only saved us from sin, but he gave us an analogy that we can make every time we think we're hurting. Every time you have a hangnail. In your life and in your experience, you can think of what Jesus Christ suffered. And you won't faint. You won't get discouraged. You'll say, that Christ who suffered that way lives in me. And I can face this problem in his power and his strength because he's real. And he overcame it. And in his power, I will overcome this need. I will overcome this problem. He did it without opening his mouth. He did it without, without sinning. He did it without in any way deceiving. He did it without talking back. He took it. He uttered not a word. As the old spiritual says, not a mumbling word. Jesus Christ endured that cross for you and for me. I tell you, don't you ever complain about your problems. If you think if somebody had problems, think of those six hours on the cross. That's the analogy you're supposed to make. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him... He knew that what was coming, he took the long look. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him that endured such a contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your mind. And then here's a word of admonition, verse 4. You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin, agonizing against sin. You're in a battle. There's no question about that. But you haven't died yet. It hasn't killed you yet. It's kind of almost amusing in that verse, you know, because what it's saying when it says resist unto blood, uh, resisting unto blood means that you're dead. And he's saying you're not dead yet. They're not going to kill you. Uh, you've got all kinds of problems, but they're not going to kill you. Being nailed to a cross will kill you. 
Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. Let Jesus Christ be Lord. Let him live his life through you. And don't complain about your lot. You're not dead yet. Obviously, not one of the problems that you faced in the last several years has killed you, right? So, you got nothing to complain about until you're dead. Then you won't have anything to complain about anyway, all right? Now, it's at this point that the writer wants to remind us of a very, very important principle. And I think I should say, just a word about the historical background, the Hebrews were being persecuted. These people in several places were facing tremendous, tremendous injustice. And God says that the injustice that you are facing has to, first of all, come by my permission. I permit it. And it is called specifically the chastening of the Lord. So he says in verse 5, And ye have forgotten. Now don't you forget, alright? Ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto sons. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Now, the word for chastening that we are going to see all the way through this text is the word peduo. The word that was translated nurture back in Ephesians chapter five, uh, chapter 6. You have forgotten the exhortation of speaking unto you as unto sons. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. See, two things that you're not to do when you are chastened of the Lord. When he puts you through the crucible and begins to uh, discipline you, don't despise. That's the first thing. Don't despise. Now the word despise is O-L-I-G-O-R-E-O. Oligoreo. And it means to regard lightly. Don't regard it lightly. What's the chasing these people are facing? The unjust treatment by persecutors. What is the thing that your child is facing? The unjust treatment of a father. What does God call it? The chastening of the Lord. What are you not to do? You're not to despise it. You're not to regard it lightly. God allowed it. So don't you dare regard it lightly. Don't cast it off as being of no significance. God permitted this to happen because he's trying to do something. He is trying to build character in the life of that child. It is God's purpose to use even unjust treatment as he understands and learns grace. It is God's purpose to uh, build the, the character by unjust treatment. Christ faced it. Teach your child to consider him. Make an analogy with him and to realize that he has not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. First thing is, don't despise it. 
Secondly, that is when he chastens. Don't lightly regard the chastening. Secondly, don't faint when you're rebuked of him. The word faint is ek luo. Luo means to release. Ek means out from. Therefore, it's to loose or to release like a bowstring to, uh, on, a, on a bow and arrow. Uh, it means to grow weary. It means to give up. It means to slacken one's effort. You don't quit just because you have been rebuked. Because one has said you're wrong, even if you think you're right. You don't quit. Now, some people, again, say, well, but it's the Father doing it and not the Lord. But this chastening was the chastening of persecutors, and it's no different, really. And it's of the Lord because the Lord delegates authority. It is done under authority, and the Lord delegates that authority and promises every person that there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, and God will not allow you to suffer above that you are able, but will with the suffering make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 He will help you endure. So you don't have to worry about that aspect of it. All you have to do is learn how to draw upon God's grace. Because it tells us, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Now, again, the word chastening is the word peduo. And I said a moment ago that I was going to give a little better definition of that. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament has perhaps the best uh, one uh, paragraph definition of this word. It simply says, the upbringing and handling of the child which is growing up to maturity, which thus needs direction, teaching, instruction, and a certain measure of compulsion in the form of discipline or even chastisement. That's what the word peduo means. In the process of raising a child, there's a whole gamut of things that have to be taken into consideration to bring that child to a place of maturity in his life. Direction, teaching, instruction, <coughs> and a certain measure of compulsion in the form of discipline and even chastisement. It has to do with the entire rearing of the child. Mind you now, it's translated chastened, but it is not only speaking of the chastisement. That's the way it's translated, but it is speaking of the whole process of learning, part of which is the chastisement. You have to take the whole thing into consideration. You have to take the concept of, of the uh, positive as well as the negative and include that in the whole process of the peduo. Uh, and if the child is given uh, uh, the, the love of a father and the, uh, and the encouragement of the father from time to time and this sort of thing, those things tend to balance out. Fathers do make mistakes. They do treat a child unjustly. They aren't always fair. They aren't always consistent. But it's the overall pattern of the home that is going to make the difference. And you see, the child will learn certain things from the injustice of a father. Will learn other things from the consistency of a mother and her attitude. And it's the whole picture 
that has to be taken into consideration. But if the child is exasperated by the unjust discipline of a father, and at the same time gets a, an attitude of bitterness from the mother, and an attitude of rebellion from the mother, then the child has received a double whammy. What the child needs is if he cannot have just discipline from the father, he needs to have consistency and sweetness and submission toward authority and, and uh, non-bitterness from the mother. That's what will balance it out. Remember, God says, my ways are not your ways. As the heaven is higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And so you think, I was telling a man the other day that we, we need to do a study in the Word of God concerning what the Bible says we can know and what man says he thinks. Naaman, Naaman the leper, came to Elisha, and Elisha didn't even come out to see him. He just said to his servant, you go tell Naaman to go down to the Jordan River and dip seven times. What did Naaman say? He said, Behold, I thought. Well, I thought that he would come out, strike his hand over my disease, and it would be gone, and that would be it. And I forget it. I don't want anything to do with this. Behold, I thought. But when he went down into the water and dipped seven times after he was compelled to do so by his servants, he went down into the water, he dipped seven times, he came up out of the water, he looked at his hands, his leprosy was gone, and he said, Behold, now I know. And there are a lot of parents that say, but I think, don't say that. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us not to lean unto our own understanding. Don't ever say, I think. Aren't you glad, though, that the Apostle Paul didn't say, I think I know whom I have believed and am persuaded he is able. Or aren't you glad that the Scripture doesn't say, I think that all things work together for good to them that love God. Aren't you glad it says, I know whom I have believed. I know that all things work together for good. Those are things we can know, you see, because God has given them. But don't you ever lean unto your own understanding. Your own understanding will tell you that the way to balance it out is by comforting the child afterward and telling him, oh, daddy's a bad man, you know. And that that somehow is going to help that child to understand that if the father doesn't love him, at least I do, oh, you're in for a disappointment. Because when that child comes to the place that he's able to do it, he's going to break your heart. He's going to despise you because he didn't see love. I, I'm going to have a wedding Friday and uh, the young man that's being married said, would you do me a favor? He said, I would like you to thank publicly my father. I always say something to the parents, but he just, he didn't know that, but he just asked me, could you publicly thank my father? He said, because I know how to treat my wife because I've seen my father. He's an expert and knowing how to treat a woman. Huh? Wouldn't you like to have a husband like that, huh? Everybody's going to come to the wedding and find out who this guy is. <laughs> I'll tell you, I, I just, that just about breaks me up. But you see, that's true. But I'll tell you, your child will also know how to treat the mate that he has by the attitudes that you project as wives. What a, what a wonderful thing to know that you have a part in this pay duo. 
in this whole disciplinary process. But then it also says, and he scourgeth. Now there's where the, there's where the uh, real discipline comes in, just to make sure that you understand it's a part of it. You see, the peduo includes discipline. But lest you think that that's something that would be excluded, God makes it very clear that there are times where he brings out the cat of nine tails with the lead tied into it and allows the whipping. It was not an easy thing. The word scourge is the word M-A-S-T-I-G-O-long-O. Mastigo-O, which means to whip. The Roman way of doing it was with the cat of nine tails. The Jewish way of punishing was primarily with the rod. But whichever was in view, we know for certain that there are times where we face the whip. There are times where we face these kind of problems. But he does this for every son whom he receiveth. Verse 9, then, excuse me, verse uh, 7 says, If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons, for what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? Any good father will chasten his children. But if ye be without chastisement, of which all are partakers if they're sons, then are ye illegitimate children, bastards, and not sons? You see, it is saying in essence, that if God does not bring chastening into the life, there's every reason to wonder whether or not that person is really a child of God. The real father will have an instinct to chasten the child. By the way, I just want to share with you that statistics are being gathered in regard to child abuse and uh, it's, I get a kick out of it really in a way if I can insert this they told us four or five years ago that there'd be less child abuse because we were aborting all these unwanted babies and now they're telling us that child abuse is in epidemic proportions what they don't realize is that because they abort all the babies they give a disrespect for life and uh, the parents can reason, I could have had the baby aborted, why not kill him now? It's really a fact. They're hearing this all the time. But they are gathering statistics. And you know what they're finding? They're finding that there's a tremendous incident of child abuse where there's been a divorce remarriage situation. Tremendous, tremendous amount of the child abuse in this country is with stepfathers and stepmothers. And uh, it's, a, it's a tragic, tragic thing. But nevertheless, you have to realize that God had a better plan. Man is, has just cast that plan off and gone his own way. God always does it right. And a, I, a friend of mine is, uh, is an ecologist. He was telling me that, that um, a few years ago up in the state of Washington, uh, they... Uh, uh, we're having trouble with the owls 
um, because they were they were uh, attacking chickens and there were large chicken farms up there and and the owls were coming in and they were killing a lot of baby chicks and this kind of thing and so they decided to get rid of the owls uh, well after all what does an owl do except sit and be wise anyway you know and uh, so they got rid of the owls and then they also they, they found out right away that uh, that there was a tremendous incident of mice the next year the mice just overran the fields and they couldn't they couldn't control the mice and they discovered that the owls had been taking care of the mice population they took a few chicks but at the same time they were taking care of the mice population now you see they were ruining the grain crops so they didn't have any grain to feed the chicks you see what the, see what happens and every time man gets his finger in the thing and tries to make the ecological balance then he finds out he actually disrupts the order and the cycle of all of this. Every creature that God has made has a purpose. And those, those creatures can, uh, will, will contribute in one way or another to a balance. And man gets in and thinks he knows better and he fouls everything up. God can wipe it all out with a volcano anyway. I, you know, the, you, you, work, you work for a hundred years trying to get rid of pollution and, and Mount St. Helens goes, whew, you know, and they got pollution, they're saying, maybe for 40 years now. I don't know how they're going to get rid of that, you know, smog devices on the car and everything else. You see, God just, God's way works, that's all. And man, every time he gets his fingers and leans, leans to his own understanding, he follows the thing up. But you see, the thing is that, that when a real father has a real child, he will have an instinct regard to that child doesn't mean a real father cannot get so depraved that he will abuse a child he might but a normal father will know how hard to hit and when to hit and where to hit and all of those things that are necessary and that that will be a proper chastisement because a real son the most natural thing in the world is for the father to discipline him all right but then it goes on and it says, furthermore, now this verse talks about fathers of our flesh. It's talking about real fathers now. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh who corrected. The word corrected is the same word. Peduo, translated here corrected. And we gave them reverence. Now that's the correct response to a father's discipline gave them reverence. Now the intent of the passage here is to tell you that you should give God reverence when he disciplines you. But in the, as he does it, by way of illustration, he says, we are fathers of our flesh, our real fathers, who corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection of the Father's spirits and live? When God allows unjust treatment to come into our life in one way or another, shouldn't we just recognize that God knows what he's doing and give reverence? The idea of reverence is the word entrepo. Entrepo means to show deference. It means to, to feel a sense of respect for the other person. You know what deference is? Deference is showing respect for the tastes of those that are in authority over us so that we restrict our freedom to be in harmony with those tastes. That's what deference is. It's simply a matter of an individual recognizing the desire of the one in authority, and though he agrees with that desire or not, 
he brings his life into harmony with those desires because he recognizes God-given authority. That's deference. And we show them deference when they've chastened us. So we ought to show God deference as well, is the principle being taught. And look in Hebrews 13, uh, verse 7, uh, verse 17, it says, Obey them, they have the rule over you, and submit yourselves. Why? For they watch for your souls, as they that must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. <laughs> you respond to authority because you recognize that authority is held accountable for the way they use that authority. All right? Now, goes on from there though and notice now it says first of all for they verily for a few days those fathers that chastened us and we showed them deference they only had a short time in which they could discipline they only did it for a short time then you grew up and left home and they didn't discipline you anymore right so the first thing is the limitation of the of the earthly father is that they have such a short time in which to discipline the child Secondly, they chastened us after their own pleasure. <laughs> they weren't always thinking what was best for the child. A good deal of the time they were thinking about what was good for them. Shut up, kid. I want to, I want to read the newspaper. You know? Well, now that's selfish. You know, children to be seen and not heard. That kind of an attitude. That's a selfish, selfish thing. And God admits that that earthly father which we gave deference to a lot of times was wrong right he had a selfish motive but he for our profit now don't get mixed up here God isn't saying two things he's saying the same thing what he is saying is this that he delegates authority that authority disciplined sometimes totally wrong, but ultimately the one who wielded the rod was God. And though the father had a wrong motive, God had a right motive for your benefit. And God turns the unjust treatment around to build character in you. That's what he's saying. What a lesson to teach to a child. A tremendous, tremendous passage to just sit down with a child and say, look, let's understand discipline. You think your father's treated unjustly. You may feel you have good reason for that. But your father is not the one who's ultimately in control. It's God. And no matter what you think your father's motive might have been, God's motive is always for your best. And God's the one that allowed it. And God could have stopped it. But God didn't because God knows what he's doing. Well, a lot of times people say, what if, he, what if a man were to kill a child in a rage? Well, if I were a wife, my first concern was would be, had I successfully communicated the gospel to that child so they knew the Lord? And if they knew the Lord, what's so bad about dying? I don't think it's right, obviously. I'm not teaching. I certainly wouldn't teach men. They ought to beat their children to death. Don't misunderstand me. But I'm looking at it from your perspective where you are helpless, the helpless victim of a father uh, or a, of, a, of a, uh, a husband who in a rage beats his child to death. My concern would not be whether that child was alive or dead. My concern would be, is he in heaven or hell? If he's in an age of accountability 
Have I successfully led that child to a knowledge of Jesus Christ? If I have, guess what? He's protected by God. You see, God will use any mistake that a person made. If the other person, the person to whom the mistake was made, is yielded to God, that's a hard word. And I certainly am not in favor of child abuse. I wouldn't want you to think that for a moment. I would not defend a father. If I caught a father beating his child unmercifully, I'd take him apart limb by limb. And then afterward, I'd ask the Lord to forgive me because I should have been more gentle. I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand by and see that. I'd restrain a father. I'd take the beating myself, but I wouldn't let him strike a child in wrath. But at the same time, having, having seen it done, it's been finished, it's done. Of course, there are legal channels and legal implications that have to be discussed in another vein. But what I'm saying to you as far as your attitude is concerned, remember, he meant it unto him for evil, but God meant it unto him for good. And I always think of, I always think of, of, of old Hezekiah. You know, now Hezekiah's problem wasn't that he had a son that was preparing to die. He didn't have a son at all, and he was preparing to die. And he said to God, God, could you just extend my life? God says, it's my will that you die now. He says, Lord, just extend my life a little longer. I don't have any posterity. I want a son. Lord said, are you sure that's what you want? Yeah. And so he did. He lived a little longer and he had a son. And his son was Manasseh. And Manasseh was one of the most wicked, wicked kings in all the nation of Judah. He got what he wanted, but the Lord sent leanness to his soul. You see, there are parents that would defend the right of their child to live. I suppose that's a very natural thing. But if God allowed his death, God spared him a worse fate. Don't ever pray out of the will of God. In any event, it tells us then, got to hurry here. Whee, where'd the time go? No discipline for the present. Uh, excuse me. They, uh, they verily for a few days chasten us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. He develops character. He teaches us the idea of being a set-apart people. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous. Nobody likes it when they're on the receiving end, anyway. No chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them who are exercised by it. See that? Those that are exercised, it produces fruit. Those that resist it, it doesn't. Well, how tragic to be beaten up and then not gain everything you can out of it because of your attitude. That'd be terrible to have to go through all this suffering and have it for naught because I didn't learn anything. That'd be terrible. And so the child needs to learn the lessons. So the, the, the way you exercise the child to righteousness is given to us in verse 12. And here are the things that a mother can do in giving, it, it's really God's fitness program here, some things that you can do for those under chastisement, whether it be your child or someone else. First of all, lift up the hands that hang down, strengthen the feeble knees. The child's in danger of collapse. How do you do that? Isaiah 35 tells us. I don't know how I'm going to finish this. Isaiah 35 tells us. I have to make a quick decision here. I'm going to give you this and I'm going to quit. 
pick up on this next week. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 through 10, tells us exactly how we lift the hands that hang down and strengthen the feeble knees. Here's what it says. Beginning verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. <laughs> there you are. Now, here's how we do it. Say to those that have a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water and the habitation of jackals where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be called there and a way and it shall be called the way of holiness. And on the unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those, the wayfaring men, though fools shall not err therein. No lion shall be there nor any ravenous beast shall go up, up thereon. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads and shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now that's a picture of the millennium. But the way, the way that you lift up the hands that hang down and strengthen the feeble knees is simply by projecting the things that God can bring out of the circumstances the person is facing. In this case, the people were suffering and God gives a view of the millennium and talks about what God's plans are. When you start talking about God and his ultimate plan and what he is ultimately going to bring about by those things that are accomplished, it brings encouragement to those that would otherwise be discouraged. It's only the first of six things that you can do. And then we've got a second point on that. And we'll finish that up next time. Let's just finish with this then. When a child is treated unjustly, is the greatest opportunity for you to teach the child at a young age how to live with things that he deems unjust. How to face those trials. How to have a right attitude. And if that child at an early age can learn to respond properly to injustice, he'll be dynamite when he gets out into the world. His character will be developed in a very important area. But in order to do that, you have to already have them in your heart. You've got to have right attitudes in your mind in order to be able to communicate these things to the child. We'll get back at that next week. Let's bow, shall we, for one moment of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the things you're teaching us from your precious word today. Lord, help us to be examples in our homes of godly attitudes and right living. Thank you for the husbands and the children you've given us. And thank you for this time today especially, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.